So we're asking a whole family with children to to live there for four months in a in a tent in dirt with no clean water, no showers, no bathrooms. You're just sitting out in the open for months waiting for a CBP1 appointment. Because you've always taken such charge. You are listening to the Border Chronicle. Are you an inventor or do you know an inventor? Welcome to the Border Chronicle. I'm Melissa Del Bosque, co-founder, along with Todd Miller, of the weekly newsletter on the U.S.-Mexico border from a border perspective. You can follow more of our work at thebordercronicle.com. Today, I'm speaking with Felicia Rangel Samponaro, co-founder of the nonprofit Sidewalk School, which provides educational programs, shelter, and services to asylum seekers in Mexico. Felicia is joining us from Brownsville at the very southern tip of the Texas border. Her nonprofit, The Sidewalk School, provides services in Reynosa and Matamoros, which is just across the river in Mexico. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with the Border Chronicle today, Felicia. Thank you for having me, Melissa. Uh, First off, I want to ask you, why did you start Sidewalk School and when? And can you talk more about the services you provide? because they've really expanded over the years. Uh, we started back on August 11th, 2019. And that was because at the time uh, before there was the original Morris encampment, there was a tent city on the plaza leading to Gateway Bridge where there were just hundreds and thousands of children sitting around every day, um, just waiting and unsure of what they were waiting for. And we just saw the depression the children were were in. Um, Also, most people don't realize when you're an asylum-seeking child uh, stuck in Mexico, you're not going to school. Education completely stops. Um, So we started the sidewalk school to bring education back uh, to the children asylum seekers. And at that time, they ended up living in Mexico for two years. So uh, we watched the children grow up during those two years. Uh, After the original Madam Morris encampment closed, we moved 45 minutes up the highway to Reynosa, where the original Reynosa encampment had already started. And then the sidewalk school expanded. So the services the Sidewalk School provides now, um, we have clinics, free clinics in Reynosa and Matamoros. Our clinics are ran by American doctors who live in San Diego. Our clinics are virtual, uh, but our nurses are registered nurses in the state of Tamaulipas in each city. We give out free medications. Um, So our clinics, that's, I guess something we're least known for uh, to the general public, but if you are an asylum seeker in our region in Matamoros and Reynosa, that's the thing we're we are most known for is <laughs> our clinics. It's not the schools. 
Uh, everyone seeks out, if you're an asylum seeker, they're always seeking out the sidewalk school clinics because it is free. Um, also, we provide internet in Matamoros and Reynosa. We bought Starlinks for both cities. We pay for the monthly service. Um, we do have schools in Matamoros and Reynosa. We also built a shelter in Reynosa called Kaleo. Um, we also monitor the bridges in Matamoros and Reynosa. We pretty much touch into everything. So that's the main thing, so. Yeah, I mean, what's really remarkable about the sidewalk school is just how how flexible you are and how you've adapted over the years to the needs of the people who are in, in the camps. And, and so you started in 2019 and, and with the tent camp, and you're saying they were there for two years? How come they were there for so long? Um, so this was back under Trump's administration when he had implemented a migrant protection protocol. And this is when no one was able to uh, come into the U.S. He kept everyone in Mexico. And that lasted his entire term. So it was two years we watched our students grow up. And how many uh, people are we talking about at the time? How many students were you helping? Oh, in the beginning, um, it feels so long ago only because it's been five years now and we've now worked inside of 11 U.S. made encampments. So we've had thousands of children now um, and continuing because, uh, you know, there's now a new Madam Morris encampment that we serve. What is the curriculum like that, that you do so, for, the, uh, for the kids? This is the, I guess, the interesting part. I get asked that. I used to get asked that question a lot. And I didn't know how to explain it well until recently. Um, I was about to say, as you know, but maybe not. So the sidewalk school started out with only hiring asylum seekers as teachers. Uh, our teachers all had degrees in different fields. Uh, but they work for the sidewalk school. So our curriculum is actually a mixture of U.S. curriculum and then curriculum that they would get in their home country. We mix the two. Um, we want the children to be familiar with what they are reading, doing, learning. But at the same time, their goal is to come to the U.S., so we also want them to be familiar with U.S. curriculum and U.S. holidays and who we consider prominent figures in, in our country. So it's actually a, a nice mixture, the curriculum. And then also we've also implemented curriculum from Mexico because that's where they are now living. So we still do hire asylum seekers as teachers, um, but this is even longer. If you've kept up with all the changes and laws and policies and different presidential terms, um, you would know like under Biden, there's Title 42. So the population became really fluid. So it was really hard for us to keep teachers during that time, which was great because I'm glad everyone was, you know, legally crossing into the U.S. and starting their life. So we now have teachers who are ex-asylum seekers who have decided to seek asylum in Mexico instead of pursuing it in the U.S. 
So our staff is still asylum seekers. They're just no longer seeking it in the U.S. Wow. So that's really interesting. So um, so you've got teachers probably from all over the world that you're working with. Can you talk about some of those teachers that really stand out to you that you've gotten to work with in the last five years? Oh, that is so many. Um, our original Matamoras staff was incredible. Uh, I, I believe most people who do or who have followed the sidewalk school these five years remember Ray, the professor from Cuba. He is like our most popular teacher. <laughs> um, I mean, we've had doctors work for us, lawyers. Uh, I guess the people who speak the most languages are Haitian asylum seekers because they do live in Latin countries after coming from Haiti and then, you know, traveling, finally getting making their way to our border. Um, so far, they that's the population we've met. They'll speak English, Spanish, Haitian Creole, Portuguese, like it's just so many different languages they pick up. I mean, we've met just an incredible amount of people during these five years that just are incredibly talented and have just so much knowledge. It's incredible. I mean, I'm, we've been very lucky to get the people we've gotten to become teachers at the sidewalk school as they wait. Uh, well, now as they wait for their CBP one appointment. Yeah. So that, that's something that we don't hear a lot about in the U S is just how many professional people there are seeking asylum, people who speak multiple languages, people with advanced degrees. Um, do you stay in touch with Ray and and the other teachers? Is is Ray now in the U.S. or is he still in Mexico? So out or? of the 21 original Sidewalk School Matamoros staff members, Ray was the only one that won asylum. And he has been in the U.S. now for almost three years a little over three years, and Ray remains one of my best friends. We just spoke yesterday. <laughs> I love Ray, and I, I assume Ray loves me too because we, we still talk all the time. We do stay in touch with um, our, especially the original staff members, yes, and then other times uh, staff that has come after them. Maybe a couple of times a year, they'll send us pictures and updates about how they're doing, how their children are doing. Um, or we'll follow them on social media. I mean, we just love to see how things are are going for all of them. Yeah. So you said about those original uh, staff. Only Ray was Ray was the only one who got asylum. What happened to the other ones? Were they denied? And then sent back to their country. So right or, now, or no them? one has been deported back to their home country. Uh, Ray is the only one that won asylum. Everyone else has uh, court dates still pending. And we're still hopeful for all of our original staff members. Um, you know, they've been here now for a, a couple of years. And we recommend it immediately. All of them get lawyers. They all did. And um, their cases are still working, working their way through our legal system. So basically, they're appealing their cases yes. and waiting. Yes, for the everyone's outcome. appealing. Yes. And I guess for people who aren't familiar with Metamoros or Reynosa, can you talk about what these cities are like and 
um, what it's like when you go there? The cities now, yes. <laughs> the cities now, oh man. Interviewing me could be just hours, but let me cut this down. Um, so Reynosa now, this is now the month of November. So earlier this year, let's say March, 2023, there were six encampments inside of Reynosa. Uh, six encampments, four shelters. Everything was just, and it stayed full. Just thousands and thousands of asylum seekers lived in Reynosa. And it was, and still is, but a very difficult time to have so many people living outside in these encampments. And these encampments, you know, I don't, for people who are not aware, that's just like I don't, picking a spot a spot in the park and putting a tent there and then living there for like five, eight months with your children, with your spouse and going through like rain and freezing cold. And you're just living in this tent, waiting and waiting and waiting. Um, Reynosa had the most encampments out of both cities in the five years that we've been working. Matamoros was different. Let's say March 2023, Matamoros, it had three encampments. The main encampment holds or used to hold thousands of people earlier this year. Um, now Matamoros is down to one encampment, which is the main encampment. And Reynosa is down to one encampment as well. So you see how the laws and policies affect in real time, the community that we work in, in both cities. Yeah, and so there's less people in the encampments. Is that because um, less people are going to those two cities or because they are getting CBP-1 appointments and are able to cross or why are there less people now? They're being stopped in the interior of Mexico. That's why there's less people right now. Oh, I see. So they're being prevented right. from ever reaching. Yes, that's Mexican. that's the actual honest truth. They're being prevented from coming to our, our border town. Yeah, and I, I went with you a few months back. Gosh, was it last yeah. year we went to Reynosa to the camp? <laughs> Time flies. And uh, yeah, and I was, I was, you know, really taken with the fact that there was no running water, there's no right. toilets, people are in these really ad hoc tents that they put together with sort of sticks, branches yeah. that they found, uh, pieces of cardboard. I mean, it was really dire circumstances. And I think at the time that we went, how many, what, there were like 6,000 yes. people there or? Mm -hmm. Something like that, yeah. Reynosa, at one point, it was like between six to 8,000 people. Like it was just once you stepped into the city of Reynosa, if you were going, if you're using the Hidalgo Bridge, like it was asylum seekers everywhere. Right. And 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 as you were saying, this is about, I guess, 45 minutes west of Matamoros and Brownsville, where you live on the other side of Matamoros. Um the majority of the people in Reynosa were from Haiti and Venezuela. I, Reynosa, I uh, Haitian population was the majority for a year. Yes. 
Yeah, and and so now who who's in Reynosa now? Is it still people from Haiti or or what's the population like there now? Uh, Reynosa now is more people of Latin descent. I would say it's sixty forty. You still have a pretty good Haitian population in that city, but I'm like at one point Reynosa, it was like ninety eight percent Haitian for like almost a solid year. It was nothing but black asylum seekers. And then in Matamoros, uh, Venezuelans became, are, are still the majority. Once Matamoros opened back up, once they started deporting Venezuelans back into Mexico, they were sending them back to Matamoros. So we started getting hundreds and hundreds of uh, Venezuelan asylum seekers every day into that city. So, so they were deporting from the U.S. Right. into Matamoros? They were deporting from the U.S. into Matamoros. Oh, okay. Got it. Um, and do do you also see African migrants as well in, in these communities in Mexico? Yes. Uh, African asylum seekers do come in both cities. Yes, they do. Yeah, and I know you've often spoke out about the rights of African Haitian migrants and the various barriers that they face when they're when migrating. Um, how is a black migrant's journey different from others on the migrant journey? So black asylum seekers cannot blend in with the crowd. We have, you know, the sidewalk school, we are equal opportunity, we help everyone. And we have helped everyone from any country you could probably name. We have helped that person, that family. When you we do speak with asylum, uh, asylum seekers, especially people of brown skin tone, they have told us many times when they get in groups as they're traveling to Matamoros, they'll just tell their kids to stop speaking and they'll stop speaking. And then they can, they literally blend into the population. They just don't say anything. Black asylum seekers, I mean, you can stay quiet your whole life. You can't blend in. You're Black. You stand out automatically. And then some Haitian asylum seekers, just like a lot of Americans, don't speak Spanish. So you're Black. You don't speak the language. You're in a Latin country. And racism isn't something that's only here in the U.S. It's also prevalent in Mexico. And actually, it's more open in Mexico. I mean, at least here, someone would probably say something if, you know, someone's acting racist towards a Black person in a public place. In Mexico, like, Last year in December, they weren't letting Black people inside of the convenience store, what we would call a 7-Eleven. They call OXO in Matamoros. They wouldn't let Black people shop inside that 7-Eleven. And that was fine. No one said anything until myself and Victor stepped into the picture. I am Black. And that is an issue with me. People should be able to shop and not be discriminated against. Also, they would not let them uh, rent apartments. We had, Victor and I had to go in and rent apartments for them. They wouldn't let them into restaurants, but there's no backlash like there is here in the US and Mexico. It was just like, oh, okay, well, they're black, who cares? Well, I care. So 
Black asylum seekers, when we tell people it is harder for, for them as they travel through all of these different countries and probably only speak Haitian Creole, as I only speak English, that's hard. And you can't blend in with the population as you travel through these Latin countries. All you do is stand out and you become a target because you do stand out. They are targeted more because they, I mean, it's just Black asylum seekers, it's very hard and it's very difficult and they're often ignored. Uh, the sidewalk school clinics, I'm going to actually post uh, some pictures today on our Twitter and Instagram, Facebook. Our clinics are majority Black patients because we listen to when they tell us that they aren't feeling well, whereas if they went to a hospital in Reynosa or Matamoros, either they're not allowed into the hospital, which has happened many times, or they will admit them and kick them out within an hour. We've had women giving birth and they told them to leave because they're black. Wow. So they come to our clinics and I'm gonna post a video because I took a video today because we have hundreds of Haitian asylum seekers that come to the sidewalk school clinic in Matamoros because we listen to them when they say they don't feel well. We don't just dismiss them. Yeah, and when I when I visited with you in Reynosa, at that time, the CBP-1 app was just getting up and running and it actually wasn't uh, recognizing people with darker skin tone when they had to take the selfie in order to start the process on the app. Um, has I mean, eventually I guess that got fixed, or is it still a problem? Oh no, that got fixed. <laughs> that got fixed. I often tell people like, if you want to see the sidewalk school's response, um, I mean, feel free to go to Twitter or our Instagram page. I was being very open about the racism that was automatically put into the CPP one application from day one. And if we were not monitoring the bridges, like we still do to this day, I don't know how long that would have been allowed to go on if we weren't watching. Yeah, I'm so glad that you called it out on on Twitter because I mean, that's how I found out about it. And I, I ended up writing an article about it for the Border Chronicle and for the Guardian. And I, I think if it weren't for you in Sidewalk School, uh, I don't think that it wouldn't it wouldn't have gotten out uh, as quickly and as much as it did. No, I no, I don't. I don't. <laughs> so, as you know, there's, there's only two black NGOs on the border. It's me and Girling Joseph, Haitian Bridge Alliance. And I don't know if if others would fight as hard. And I'm probably wrong. Maybe they would have. I don't know. I don't check. Because, you know, there are other NGOs in Matamoros with us. And to be honest, I don't check their social media. Usually I'm very busy. So you could tell me after this interview. I don't know if they were posting about the same thing as well. They could have been. I just know I did. <laughs> I posted it. I sent messages. I did everything I could to bring attention to this blatant discrimination against anyone who was brown or darker than brown could not get an appointment on this app. And it's the same thing. <laughs> uh, we're having, 
Uh, Melissa, we could just talk about this forever. But yes, but I could be wrong. So you would have to tell me. I hope other organizations were doing it, doing it at the same time we were doing it at that time. I don't know. I mean, I agree with you. I feel like the Black migrant experience is really underreported and and not really focused on like it should be. Um, you know, you you spoke of a Haitian Bridge Alliance and and they're incredible, and and you're incredible. But um, other than the two of you, I don't I don't hear much more about the Black experience and migration and. Uh, I think there should be a lot more awareness and a lot more focus on it. Yeah. But, and also I don't, I'm sure people aren't aware, like they're black Venezuelans. Like you could pick a nationality and not trying to say, I knew this whole time either. I didn't know until I started doing this work that there are so many black people from so many different nationalities. And during, I don't know if you remember that during that time when they were deporting just Haitian groups, just one after the other, back to Haiti. I believe that was earlier this year. And they were accidentally putting people from Africa on those planes. They were probably also accidentally putting people from Venezuela uh, on those planes. And putting them, right, to Haiti. putting them in Haiti, people from Mexico who are also Black. Like, I don't know if people actually realize you can be from other countries and have a, a brown skin tone. <laughs> it's not just Haitians and Africans. There are people from Latin countries all around the world who have brown or darker skin tones. But they are automatically grouped in with Haitian asylum seekers. And then they're sent to this country that they have never been to before in their whole life. And we've met some of those asylum seekers who were sent to Haiti and they had never been there before. But our U.S. government just naturally assumed since their skin tone was brown, that must be where they're from. And that's where they flew them to. That's insane. So did they get out of Haiti or are they are some people still stuck there? The ones who contacted us got out of Haiti. They were in a panic. They had never been to that country. They didn't know what to do. They weren't even sure why they were sent there. Because, you know, when you're deported, they're, they're just telling you to get on a plane. You're not even sure where you're going during that time. You're just shackled up and told to get on a plane. And then when you get there, you're like, oh, this is where I am. Wow. Yeah, that is wild. So you've worked now through the Trump administration and now the Biden administration. Um, I mean, the policies are just changing all the time. So how do you adapt to that at the sidewalk school? Because I imagine people are coming and going and, and these policies really impact the border. So uh, let me say, I think... Because we're often asked, like, how how did we stay open this long? Especially being a school. Schools love to ask that, but now other NGOs, if you know about the clinics and the other services that we do, they now ask, like, how do y'all do it? And Victor and I change along with the administration. <laughs> we change along with whoever's president, 
We change along with whatever new law and policy the U.S. government has put in place. We, once it changes, we change with it. We go along with it because we are a humanitarian aid organization. We are not lawyers. We are not doctors. We do not represent ourselves to be one. We do hire uh, doctors and we do have volunteer lawyers, but we are humanitarians. So our goal is to help you. And the best way to help you is if me, myself and Victor know the current US laws, immigration laws and policies. And then we, we learn it and then we share the information with you. So you asylum seeker can have the, you can make the best decision for you and your family. Like right now in Mexico, asylum seekers are allowed to present themselves on a bridge at one of eight ports of entry without a CBP one appointment. So the downside to that, and we give out flyers, we have lawyers come cross and give talks. They give talks via Zoom. Victor and I tell people every day. The downside about that is if you present yourself on a bridge to a US official without a CBP one appointment asking for asylum, Yes, they will take you. But then if you did not have like a medical emergency, if you weren't dying in that moment, if you didn't have evidence that you were like kidnapped and assaulted, then they're going to put you in expedited removal and fly you right back to your home country. Wow. Um... So it's just incredibly complicated. And I want to ask about Operation Lone Star, which is uh, the Texas governor's initiative to detain and apprehend uh, migrants and asylum seekers when they do cross the river. What kind of impact has Operation Lone Star had on the, the migrants in Matamoros and Reynosa? So on our Twitter account, I believe I posted some videos of Operation Lone Star when it first started and they were playing those recordings um, in the middle of the night, like at two, four in the morning and blasting the sirens across from the Matamoros encampment, which is the largest encampment. Uh, I posted those videos because, I mean, on the U.S. side, that would be considered a form of torture. So I don't know why it's considered something different on the Mexico side. So they were keeping people up all night. They were um, blasting horns and and uh, shining bright lights into the camps. And then they were also playing recordings, right, that said in different languages, do not cross the river, um, I guess, in Mandarin and Spanish and I don't know if it was other languages. Yes. Right? That's exactly what they were doing to thousands of people. And so during the day, do is it just soldiers and police that stand on the Texas side of the river and there's there's razor wire and and I guess hum, um, army humvees and so forth. What, what does it look like when you look over on the other side of so the river? So before all of the, the razor US? wire, because this change this whole the whole thing with razor wire, them breaking down the embankment on the other side, 
the the lighting, the speakers, the jeeps. Initially, before they had the wires up, yes, they did have people stationed, two people like every few feet from each other on the U.S. side, looking out from the Matamoros encampment over to into Brownsville. You would see them stationed, two people every few feet apart, just going all the way down the bank. Um, as they start putting the razor wire up, and now it covers the entire side of it, then you start seeing less and less people. So now you really don't see the soldiers out there like they were before, because it's just razor wire, just up and down the embankment. What you do see are a lot of people's clothing and shoes that have been caught in the razor wire as they're trying to go up the embankment and trying and trying to crawl underneath it. Yeah. Have you seen a lot of people with in, uh, razor wire injuries that have come to the clinic? No, the uh, because side? if you're doing that, you're on the U.S. side. <laughs> so we don't we don't see the aftermath of what the razor wire does Two people? No, we don't see that. We do see, like when we went to San Diego, we saw what happens when like women would climb the wall and they would fall off of the wall. And that was that was something that we had never seen down here in our region. But up there in, in California, that was very hard to see because those were some serious injuries. And, and do you think Operation Lone Star is deterring people no. from crossing? <laughs> no. It, it... No. I'm sorry. No, I, I mean, we work there seven days a week. No, it doesn't stop people um, from crossing. Organizations like the Sidewalk School, where we are the ones giving out information to asylum seekers about current U.S. laws and policies, about how to use the CBP-1 app, about how to download the CBP-1 app. We are not government funded from either side. They have not given us one penny. So you would think a better way to use the money is to post this information on the Mexico side. Tell people what are the current US laws and policies? What does it mean if I try to present on a bridge without a CBP-1 appointment? How do I download the CBP-1 app? How do I use the CBP-1 app? The CBP-1 app should be more should be more than just in three languages, which is right now it's only three languages it's in. So if they invested more money to help teach people, these are our laws and policies. This is what you need to do. This is how our immigration system works. That would be extremely helpful, extremely helpful. Instead of investing in barbed wire and cutting people and these walls where women and children are falling off of and dislocating shoulders and opening up gashes on their thighs, because that's, that's not stopping anything. You're actually hurting people. And as you know, people have died in the river especially in Matamoros, the Rio Grande River, people drown in that river all the time trying to cross. Instead of doing that, why not invest in giving information on the Mexico side to the asylum seekers who legally want to come into this country, which is the majority of people, 
And because if that was not true, we would not have worked in 11 U.S. made encampments, which is what we have worked in, myself and Victor. That's how many thousands of people are waiting to legally come into our country because they don't want to be deported back home. But our U.S. government won't invest in that. Instead, they're investing in hurting people. Yeah, and this is the thing I often hear from humanitarian groups like the Sidewalk School, that you don't re receive any support from any, any governments, and yet you're there dealing with the mess that's been created by multiple governments, and people are really starved for information. There's a lot of confusion and disinformation, and like you said, at the very basic level, if if these governments would just provide accurate information to people, it would probably um, there'd be a lot less misery. People come in, I and they think. don't. Some people don't even know what the CBP one app is. So I mean, at the very least, <laughs> if they could just put signs up in the border town saying, "This is the CBP one app. This is what it's used for." This is how you use it, like at the very least. But yes, we, we do not get any money from any government. We are funded solely by individuals like yourself who are kind enough to donate to the sidewalk school. Yeah, and for our U.S. listeners who probably maybe don't know what CBP1 is either. Um, could you talk a little bit about what it is? And and I was surprised to find that that um, that you and Victor now have become like IT trouble shooters in terms of helping people sort of navigate this very glitch filled uh, app that often has more error messages yes. than anything uh, Victor else. Victor and I had to become CBP one experts uh, because we had to tell we had to show people how to use it. And there's no one else out there doing that. But the CBP1 application is, I it's been phrased to me in so many different ways. I don't know, I don't wanna phrase this wrong. Um, the, so the CBP1 application is used to legal, to make an appointment like with our US government to legally come into the US and I don't want to get too technical in it, but I mean, I guess that's the simplest way. You're making a, an appointment with Homeland Security to walk up on a bridge and present yourself to an American officer, but you have a, a day and time that you're told to be there. You go at that day and time, the American officer takes you, and then you are legally in the U.S. And then from there, your process starts. Um, your asylum process, if you choose to seek asylum. Right. And and this is what uh, was instilled under the Biden administration, right? This is really the only way people can apply for an asylum interview. This took the, the place moment. of Title 42. And I know most Americans aren't aware of what Title 42 is either. But this took the place of Title 42. Um, yes, under Biden. And I mean, the way people have phrased it to me different ways, like someone's like, this is the new metering system. And that is one way to phrase it because it's only so many people a day allowed at each port of entry to come into the US. And let me say, it's not, it's not even 1000. 
because I, I can hear people now like, oh, thousands of people are allowed to come to the U.S. because of the CPP-1 application. No, we're talking about hundreds. Hundreds of people are allowed every day to come into the U.S. through the CBP-1 application. There, You are allowed to present yourself on a bridge without a CBP-1 appointment, but like I said before, it counts against you. That will most likely get you deported back home very quickly because our government prefers for you to wait for a CBP-1 appointment. Let me also say the CBP-1 application was meant for iPhones iPhones is something that's very American. Outside of the U.S., people use Android phones. So they've made a lot of corrections since day one to be more compatible with Android phones. But your phone has to be a new Android phone. So if your phone is four or five years old, then you can't download the CBP-1 application. Or if your phone is a Zumi, or there's two other phones that won't download the application that are Android as well. So we don't make it easy on asylum seekers. You have to be able to afford a new phone. And it's optimal if you could afford an iPhone, which if you're living inside of an encampment with your children, that's most likely not going to happen for you. But on top of that, we don't give you free internet. That's why the sidewalks will bought Starlinks. So you have to have a new Android phone. You have to be able to support internet every single day and check it every day because you only have 24 hours to accept your appointment. If you miss it, that's it. You have to start over. The process takes four to three months, sometimes longer, to get a CBP-1 appointment with our government. And in that time, you're living inside of an encampment in Mexico on a border town with your family. So it's very dangerous as you're waiting every day to get this appointment. Yeah, and, and so is that why we are seeing people crossing at the river? Because people get tired of waiting or, or fed up or they can't get the app to so work? So let me say, it's not tired of waiting. Our border towns are Mexico. So I love Madame Morris and Reynosa, um, but I'm sure most people are aware of, of what happens in Mexico and how it's ran. Um, so it's dangerous. We, uh, it was earlier this year, the two Americans that were killed, correct? In Madame Morris, that was this year, right. So we're asking a whole family and the four black Americans were only in Madame Morris for what? two hours and two were killed. So we're asking a whole family with children to, to live there for four months in a, in a tent in dirt with no clean water, no showers, no bathrooms. You're just sitting out in the open for months waiting for a CBP-1 appointment. So I don't know about anybody. I have a child. So if I had to pick the life of my child away for a CBP-1 appointment, guess which way I'm going to go? Right. And and can you talk a little bit about your background in Victor's and and um, and what you were doing before you started? So I the used sidewalk to be school? a certified. Uh, I used to be a certified teacher in Texas. I was a generalist. I was certified to teach uh, pre-K through eighth grade. But before the sidewalk school started in 2019, I was actually um, a housewife for nine years. And I 
focused on on my family, my son, and then the sidewalk school started. Um, but I do have a degree in psychology. I did go to grad school. Victor actually did I he did IT for WIC and he was helping um I don't know how not um, underprivileged families, but families with lower incomes uh, to get milk. But he was the IT person for that. And then how did you two meet and start doing We met school? on the Gateway Bridge back in 2018, serving dinner to asylum seekers. At that time, it was like 25 people. This is right when Trump started the metering process. So they lived underneath a carport on the bridge. And it was literally just like a loose group of strangers. We found each other on Facebook. And that's the first night Victor and I actually met. So you met serving food to asylum seekers on the bridge who were waiting in Mexico to come into the U.S. Yeah, there's actually a picture of it on Facebook. If you go all the way back to 2018, you will see the first night that Victor and I met. <laughs> and and what is Cavazos. Victor's last name again? Yeah. Okay. Victor Cavazos. And so you've been now working on this for five years. What would you like to see governments do, the Mexican and the U.S. governments, to to make things better for people, uh, for there to be like less suffering, less misery in on on the Mexican side as people are waiting for their asylum hearings like or Operation Lone Star. That money really could be used and serve a better purpose by educating people about the U.S. immigration system on the Mexico side. Giving people the the correct, accurate information will do way more than giving them no information and then putting up barbed wires and walls. You know, that that seems so backwards to me. Why not just tell people <laughs> this is this is what it is? And then if you're not, since you're not doing that, like Texas isn't doing that, our US government isn't doing that. Why not fund the little bitty organizations that are doing it? Because that's literally what the sidewalk school does every single day. That's what Victor and I have been doing for five years, encampment after encampment, city after city now, is go out and give the correct information to as many people as possible, seven days a week, so they can make the best decision for themselves. Some people, after they hear the correct information, they decide they want to go back to their home country. You just have to tell them, these are your options. What do you want to do? I wish our government would, well, and this I know is a, a far reach, but go back to what it used to be, to where an asylum seeker could walk up to our ports of entry and just ask for asylum and be allowed into our country and then let the legal process take its course. That's that's what it's for. All of this money being put into to Operation Lone Star, that could go into legal services. How about putting some immigration lawyers on the border in Brownsville, in McAllen, so they can tell asylum seekers once they make it to the U.S., 
this is what you need to do. This is what's happening now. We, we don't use, the U.S. government doesn't use any of the money to educate people. And that's the one thing the person needs the most. They need to know what is happening. So why not invest in that? And then trust them to make a decision for themselves and, and their families instead of us forcing decisions upon them. Right now, by forcing thousands of asylum seekers to wait in Mexico with their families, or even sometimes by them, we have unaccompanied minors as we speak in both cities. Wow, right, just, just living, living there alone. alone. But where the U.S. government is forcing upon these unaccompanied minors, you're, you're going to be stuck here in Mexico. Now, some of these unaccompanied minors, because they do seek out myself and Victor in the sidewalk school, their parents are already in the U.S. And some of these parents have already hired American lawyers. They're just trying to see how can they get their, their minor child over to the U.S. side. The, so much happens in these border towns that I'm sure most people don't even realize, like the separation of families. Separation of families happens so many different ways now. Like this with unaccompanied minors when their mom and dad is sitting on the U.S. side. But yet the child can't just go up to the port of entry and request asylum. Because the child can't. The child is, the children, these unaccompanied minors, they're stuck in Mexico. And why? Because they can't just walk up to the bridge and request asylum. You can't do that. They have to go through the CBP. So if you ask our U.S. government, no. But yes, they do. They have to go through the CBP one app. Wow. Yes, and and a lot of things are not what it seems. Um, Like the rhetoric of like our borders being invaded. I When Title 42 was lifted and all of those reporters from NBC, ABC, everyone had come down to Matamoros and Reynosa to record what they thought would be thousands of people running into the U.S., they didn't get one person. And we told them the night before, no one's going to try to come into the U.S. because people know that they would be deported back to their home country. Look, Haiti, their president was assassinated in his own home. What was that, like two years ago? And they've had two earthquakes. Venezuela, their government, their home country is going through so much strife. No one's trying to get deported back to a place where there's nothing left for them or where they or their children will be killed. So they sit quietly and patiently and wait on the Mexico side, legally, waiting for their legal chance to enter our country. When Title 42 lifted at 1 a.m., we were out there on the bridge. All the reporters were, sad to say, disappointed because no one had come. And how awful you would want to see something like that. That that says something about you. But no one, no one came to those bridges that night. I guess it says a lot about the incredible amount of disinformation that's just being um, spread out there, right? In 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 the U.S. about about what is happening at the border, and you know, portraying asylum seekers as invaders, and and 
that message is repeated constantly by elected officials, by, you know, media, right-wing media. And I think it's really, unfortunately, sunk in with many Americans. That whole narrative of people just running to our border is ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous. And the sidewalk school would not still be working five years going still if that was true. That's how untrue that is. Mm -hmm. We would not have encampments if that was true. We still have encampments in both cities. The shelters stay packed in both cities. So I just feel like perhaps people should take the time. Like if you really wanna see what's happening at the border, Follow the sidewalk school. I post videos and pictures all the time from the Mexico side showing you this is what's really happening here. But instead, like we have less than a thousand followers, less than and all our social media, like less than a thousand. So that's how interested people are in what's really happening at the border. If you're really invested in what's happening here, follow me. Follow the sidewalk school. Show me. Let our follower, let that number go up past a thousand. But the fact that it doesn't shows me how invested people really are and how they're just willing to listen to whoever and whatever they're saying and take that as the truth when it's not. And let me also say this. People often talk about there's like enough migrants here. That blows my mind. Like we are a country of migrants, <laughs> like all of us, everybody. And who, who gives anyone the right to put a cap on how many people can come to the United States? I am from Houston. I now live here in the Rio Grande Valley. Our region used to be blue. It's turning red. The majority of CBP officers in our region are minorities. And it shocks me whenever I hear any type of negative rhetoric coming from them, especially if they live here. Because you are probably first generation here yourself or maybe second generation. So who are you to then close the door on the people coming behind you? Who are you to say they're not good enough, but your parents were, your grandparents were good enough? That's awful. I am second generation myself. My grandfather's from Mexico. My father's first generation, I'm second. I'm not far removed from this myself. And I would never shut the door on anybody. Well, Felicia, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us at the Border Chronicle. And I will link to your Facebook and your Twitter, now X, uh, so people can follow you and the Sidewalk School and see what's really happening on the Mexican side of the border in Matamoros and Reynosa. And well, thank uh, you for thank having you so me, much. Melissa. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. You've been listening to the Border Chronicle podcast. The Border Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona. This episode was edited by me, Steve Heiss. If you like what you're hearing, please consider rating us on your favorite podcast platform. It will help other people find the show. You can read and listen to more local border journalism on our website, theborderchronicle.com.